Luke 1, beginning in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. This virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. I have a confession to make. I was once a male chauvinist when it came to basketball. I played hoops in high school, and I always thought the girls' game was just a warm-up for the boys. I never really took girls' basketball seriously. 
Until one day, my little girl, she put her arms around my neck. And she planted a kiss on my cheek. And she whispered in my ear, Daddy, I want to play basketball. And will you please be my coach? How could I say no? I had coached my three sons in baseball and football and basketball. I was accustomed to coaching boys, but I had no idea just how different the girls' game would be. I got a feel for what I was in for the very first practice. Two girls, they crashed into each other. It was an awful spill. One of the girls was holding her hand in obvious pain. I thought, oh no, a broken bone, pulled ligaments, maybe a dislocated finger. I raced to her side, honey, what's wrong? Are you hurt? She moaned, yes, yes, I did it. I broke a nail. (laughs) I have now added broken fingernails to my list of possible basketball injuries. But that was just a prelude to how different it would be coaching the girls over coaching the boys. I've learned 12-year-old girls can be gutsy, but most of the time they're just giddy. They giggle, and they laugh, and they have fun. They don't take it all so seriously. Boys, they act macho and tough. They try to better each other. But girls, they just enjoy participating. It's enough to just be part of the team. Don't get me wrong, the girls play hard. But unlike boys, it's not life and death. Girls even bump into each other on the court and stop to apologize. I had never seen basketball stripped of male egos. It was refreshing. I had more fun coaching the Lady Lakers than I did coaching any team in any sport. I share with you this morning my admiration for 12-year-old girls basketball because it has helped me glean some insights into the mind and the heart of a young Hebrew maiden from Nazareth, a young girl named Mary. When the angel announced to her the Christmas news, Mary was close in age to the girls on the Lady Lakers. Bible scholars believe if Mary played girls basketball, she would have played in the 13 to 14-year-old age group. My experience with those seven sweet but sweaty little girls helped me to see Christmas from the perspective of Mary. And through their eyes, through Mary's eyes, Christmas has looked a lot different to me ever since. In this morning's text, we see Mary's response to the angel's astonishing announcement. And then to Elizabeth's affirming witness. We get a glimpse of Mary's perspective and a feel for Mary's emotions. In front of the angel, Mary was unpretentious and unselfish. In the home of Elizabeth, she was understanding and she was uninhibited. And this is how I want to spend this and every Christmas, unpretentious and unselfish and understanding and uninhibited. I want to see Christmas through the eyes of Mary. First, imagine Mary standing before the angel Gabriel. When we talk of angels now, please forget the image of chubby old Clarence who helped George Bailey in that Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. In the Bible, angels appear frightening, ominous. Angels are warriors of God. In 2 Kings 19, a single angel slaughters an army of 185,000 troops. 
Angels execute God's judgment. An actual angel looks more like a professional wrestler than a plump little Cupid or a choir boy. Imagine a celestial Hulk Hogan, Gabriel towering over and scaring this little girl from Nazareth. Mary was obviously astonished by the angel's appearance, but what really shocked her was the angel's announcement. His greeting rattled her. Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. His words were intended to be a compliment, yet they frightened Mary. Verse 29 tells us, When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. The angel had to assure her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It's interesting, when Mary saw the angel, her initial impulse was not that God had chosen her for a special honor or purpose. No, she feared she was being singled out for judgment. This was why Mary was so frightened. Her amazement came from a sense of unworthiness. Realize this Mary had no illusions of grandeur. She understood her humanity, her sinfulness, her dependence on the mercies of God, Mary saw herself as nothing special, unpretentious, humble. These are the words that described this little girl's attitude. And those are words that describe the girls on my former basketball team. For years, I coached the same age group in boys' hoops. And according to my estimates, by the time a boy reaches 12 years old, he has already seen 1,764,943 professional basketball games. Which means that the first day he walks on the court, he thinks he's the next LeBron James or Steph Curry. When Shaquille O'Neal, a.k.a. Shaq, was balling for the L.A. Lakers, my son was playing basketball. And every basketball season, he changed the spelling of his name from Z-A-C-H to Z-A-Q. We had Shaq and Zach. My point is, unpretentious is not a synonym for a 12-year-old boy. Oh my, they assume. They assume they're good. They push and shove. They fight to be first. Everyone expects to be the star of the team. When a guy gets the ball, his first thought is to shoot. Not so with the girls. They've got nothing to prove. Ego-wise, you can't tell the best player from the worst. This Christmas, I want to be a little more like the girls. I'm learning the key to contentment is not in getting more, but in expecting less. When I front load my life with expectations, with high and lofty goals this world can't satisfy, I'm only setting myself up for heartbreak. I think... Part of the inevitable letdown after Christmas is the result of expecting too much out of Christmas. For many Americans, the Christmas season represents materialism to the max. Toys and edibles, glitter and gold. Christmas is about what twinkles. We gorge ourselves with everything we believe will make us happy. And then when it doesn't, there's this huge letdown. Reminds me of the young man who opened a Christmas gift from his aunt. The look on his face definitely indicated his obvious disappointment. She said, I'm sorry, you don't like my gift? The young man replied, it's okay, but when you ask if I preferred large checks or small checks, I thought you were talking about money, not neckties. 
Bill Adler has a book which contains children's letters to Santa Claus. I want to read you two. First, Dear Santa, Last year you didn't leave me anything good. The year before last year, you didn't leave me anything good. This year is your last chance. <laughs> Signed, Bobby. I'd say Bobby is being just a little pretentious. Here's another letter. Dear Santa, in my house there are three boys. Daniel is two, Jeffrey is four, Justin is seven. Daniel is good sometimes, Jeffrey is good sometimes, Justin is good all the time. Signed, Justin. Notice both those letters were written by little boys. And little boys grew up to be big boys who carry the same attitudes of greed and one-upmanship. I deserve more, or I'm better at that than you are. I wonder how many adult boys and girls have that same attitude toward God that Bobby and Justin had toward Santa. Oh, when God doesn't give us all that we would want or think we need, we complain, don't we? We, we try to do, outdo each other. We try to prove that we deserve the bigger blessing. It's nothing but pretense. It's haughtiness. It's an air of self-righteousness. Pretense is like a pungent cigar in an enclosed room. The haze and the smoke billows through the air and it suffocates everyone who's not puffing. Oh, to be like Mary. To open up the windows of humility. To let in the fresh air of honesty and meekness. This Christmas, I'm going to be more like Mary. I'm focusing not on what I want, but on what God's already been gracious enough to give. Rather than make a Christmas list, I'm counting my blessings. I realize that if I never got another gift, God has already done for me more than I'll ever deserve. For Jesus to die in my place, to cleanse me from my sin, to reunite me to God, that's more than enough to keep me praising and serving God for all eternity. Yet Mary was not only frightened by the angel's greeting, she was also shot by the news that he brought. He says in verse 31, You will conceive... And bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And of his kingdom there will be no end. I'm sure the description of her child's greatness would one day stir her imagination. Even warm her heart. But at the moment she just couldn't get over those three words. You will conceive. Mary asked the angel, how can this be? Since I do not know a man. We're told, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. I'm sure it wasn't as detailed an explanation as Mary would have liked, but it was enough for her to obey. The mechanics will remain a mystery, yet God will work a miracle. What the angel lacked in specifics, he made up for in confidence. He affirms to Mary the hearty truth, with God, nothing shall be impossible. And this little 13-year-old girl responds to God with one of the most beautiful declarations of faith in all of the Bible. In verse 38, she says, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. When I coached boys basketball, I was always harping. 
Set up the offense. Play your position. Come on now, pass the ball. And it was always, coach, do we have to? But with the girls, it was always, yes, sir, coach. I could say, girls, stand on your heads and act like monkeys. And they'd all still shout, yes, sir, coach. The girls on my team, they were unselfish players. Twelve-year-old boys, they know it all. Challenging authority is a young boy's expertise. But young girls, they don't know all that much about basketball. So they trust the coach. They believe in what the coach tells them, even to the point of following his instructions. It's amazing. This is why coaching girls is such a pleasure. I love those words, yes, sir, coach. And so does God. That's what I hear Mary saying to God. Yes, sir, coach. Mary, like all young girls, she had plans and dreams and ambitions. For one, she was engaged. She was about to become Mrs. Joseph. She had designs on her future, but she realized she wasn't the coach. Mary believed that God knew more than she did. So when his instructions altered her plans, she responded, Yes, sir, coach. In his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey, he makes the following observation. He says, often a work of God comes with two edges, great joy and great pain. And in her matter-of-fact response, Mary embraced both. She was the first person to accept Jesus on his own terms, regardless of the personal cost. I picture Mary in the huddle with God. She's wearing a Reeboks and jersey. She's got her... Hair tied back away from her eyes. She's panning, trying to catch her breath. Beads of perspiration are rolling off her forehead. She looked into Coach God's eyes for his instructions. She believes every word, and then she responds, Yes, sir. Mary knows reproach will come. She's launching into the unknown. Her life will be forever inconvenienced by God's will. But she trusts Coach Rather than insist on her way, she agrees to play her part on his team. And we are in the same huddle. God is asking you and me this morning, will we trust him? Will we conform to his desires? Will we bow our will to his instructions? Will we admit that he knows more about life than we do? Will the coach hear, yes, sir, from us? Well, in verse 39, the backdrop now shifts, and we find the expected mother at the house of her cousin Elizabeth. An angel had also visited Elizabeth's husband, Zacharias, and had promised that he and his wife would have a son of their own in their old age. Elizabeth had conceived. It was not a virgin birth, but it was a miracle nonetheless. And Elizabeth was a great comfort to Mary. Besides Joseph, cousin Elizabeth was probably one of only a small group of people who really believed Mary's story. These two chosen, honored ladies, they understood each other. They understood what was happening. They talked and they exchanged thoughts. And the three-month visit probably seemed like just a few days. It's my hunch that during this visit, Mary did a lot of listening. Elizabeth was the first to participate in a miracle. She was the older. She was the wiser. Notice when Mary arrives after their greeting, she says nothing else. 
From verses 41 to 45, it's her cousin who doesn't stop talking. Mary just listens and learns. You know, listening and learning are what 12-year-old girls do best. When, like the boys, you think you're LeBron James, what can a fat, old, has-been coach like me teach you? But when I looked into the eyes of those little girls, I could tell they thought I was the Vince Lombardi of the hard courts. They actually wanted to hear what I had to say. You know, the tendency for most of us at Christmas time is to rush through it doing rather than listening and learning. This past week, my three-year-old grandson, Quincy, he informed me that he now knows all there is to know about the Christmas story. Mary and Joseph, the shepherds and wise men, the Savior's birth. Hey, this is all old news to him. And I think a lot of us share his attitude. Christmas has happened every year. And somewhere along the line, we develop the impression that we've grasped all there is to know about Christmas. There's nothing else here for us to learn. And so, rather than pause to contemplate, we shop. Rather than probe into the meaning, we shop. Rather than think and reflect, we shop. Once there was a pastor, he sent one of the deacons up to the sign store to place an order for a Christmas banner. The deacon forgot the paper where the pastor had written the message for the sign in its dimensions. He texted the pastor for the information. When the deacon got the return text, he almost fainted. It read, unto us a child is born, eight feet long, three feet wide. That's quite a newborn. Obviously, Jesus wasn't eight feet, but he was indeed quite a child. When was the last time you looked at Christmas in a way that caused you to stop your hurried activities and it made you marvel, wow, that was quite a child. I'm sure Elizabeth didn't tell Mary anything she didn't already know. She added nothing to the angel's announcement. But as the two ladies probed the scriptures and saw how their circumstances had been predicted centuries in advance, how their two lives were now fulfilling God's predetermined plan. As they realized more clearly who this special child was and the ramifications of what he had come to do, it enthralled their minds. It thrilled their hearts. This Christmas, I'm trying to be like Elizabeth and Mary and the girls on my team. I want to learn. I've gone back to the basics. I'm wanting to see the old, old story in a brand new light. I'm trying to listen again. I want to learn more. I'm trying to eavesdrop in on Mary and Elizabeth's ancient conversation. It reminds me of Scott Walker. Torrential rains had flooded Scott's basement. He went downstairs to salvage what he could. As he waded through the water, he saw a box bobbing toward the doorway. It was headed outside. He pushed through the water to try to save it. The box contained Christmas decorations that the family had collected over the years. Inside the box were the mahogany nativity figurines that his parents had bought when they were serving as missionaries in the Philippines. This nativity set had been the centerpiece of Scott's Christmas every year as he was uh, growing up, since he was a child. Over the years, Scott had taken those figurines for granted as he had the story that they represented. 
But now as he cradled that box in his arms, he kept whispering, we almost lost them. We almost lost them. This Christmas, I don't want to lose the mystery and majesty and meaning of what this season truly represents. Great is the story of Christmas. Great meaning we can glean from it if we'll listen, if we're willing to learn. And then finally, when Mary does speak, what a burst of emotions pour from her heart. Her words in verses 46 through 55 have become famous. We call them Mary's Magnificat. And we could probe their meaning for weeks on end and never exhaust these words. Her reflections were as pregnant with meaning as Mary was with child. You know, I think it's no accident we have Mary's Magnificat, not Joseph's Magnificat. Both Mary and Joseph were visited by angels. Both were enrolled on a special mission. Both were given specific marching orders. But their responses were very different. Joseph trudged off to do, whereas Mary took time to feel. Joseph sprung into action. Mary sung a song of adoration. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not belittling Joseph's obedience. We're going to spend some time on him next week. Joseph's actions were also a proper response to the divine visitation. Christmas is certainly a time to do. It's a time to sacrifice and serve and give and spread the good news. But Christmas is also a time to feel. And you see it that way through Mary's eyes. Just read Mary's song and it's obvious her three months with Elizabeth were not a time for doing or even figuring out, but a time for feeling. Her songs reek with emotion. She comes across uninhibited in her expressions. She begins in verses 46 and 47, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. I once had a neighbor down the street who decorated his house, his yard, his trees, his fence, his driveway with thousands of blinking Christmas lights. His house was a stop on the light lookers tour. This picture isn't his house, but you get the idea. It was similar. Thousands of cars drove down our street to marvel at his lights. In fact, through the month of December, every time we came home after dark, the kids wanted to turn left instead of right and drive by Alan's house. I got to admit, at the time, Alan's decoration sort of brought out the Scrooge in me. I questioned the wisdom of such extravagance. Surely the money for all those lights could have been better spent. What about the electric bill? Deep down inside, I kind of resented the attention that his house was getting from my four kids. Several years ago, Alan's Christmas spectacle came to an abrupt end. My friend died of a heart attack. But it got me thinking about his lights, what they had meant to so many people. How many smiles had he put on people's faces? How much joy had he brought to little hearts? When I preached Alan's funeral, I talked about his Christmas lights and what they had taught me, that life is more than efficiency and conservation, that it's also about wonder and awe. It's about stirring up delight. It's about joy and enjoying. 
special events call for special celebrations. That's why every Christmas now, I string a few lights across my house. Even the first Christmas was not about efficiency, but about extravagance. A host of angels seen to a few lowly shepherds. A celestial body, no less. A star guides the wise men. The king of the universe is laid into a manger. What was efficient about God coming to earth as a man? I'm sure there were easier, more noble ways he could have come. But Christmas wasn't about God figuring the best utilization of resources and manpower. It was about God devising the most colorful, brilliant, heart-stopping, excessive display of love possible. Think of God's extravagance. What he did that first Christmas was truly over the top. The Almighty joined the ranks of the frail. The all-knowing came to know what it was like to be a human. The highest and holiest dove as low as he could go into our muck and mire to show us a way out. Hey, maybe stringing a few lights together across the house isn't such a silly idea after all. Christmas is as much about feeling and rejoicing as it is about thinking and doing. Christmas is about slowing down and then shouting out. When boys play basketball, they don't smile or laugh or chit-chat. The boys are all down to business. And hug? you got to be kidding. Boys don't hug. If someone sinks a shot in the last second of the game and your team wins, there is about a three-second window when a 12-year-old boy might hug another 12-year-old boy. But if they miss that slight crack of opportunity, say four seconds, you can forget it. But the girls, hey, they want to hug after every made free throw. It's all about hugging. Boys are staid and somber while the girls are bubbly and giddy and excitable. Mary's song was an eruption of emotion. She gives God a high five for his faithfulness. She turns on a yard full of Christmas lights to celebrate God's mercy. Did you know that in Brazil, they actually celebrate Christmas with fireworks? I like that idea. I think Mary would like it too. In essence, isn't this what God did when the sky over the fields of Bethlehem opened up and an angel chorus sang glory to God in the highest and celebrated with shepherds that the Messiah had now come. This Christmas, I'm hoping to get a little giddy over God. I've been admiring the Christmas lights these days, taking the long way home. I've been singing more around the house, just ask Kath. Hey, I'll be caroling tonight. This year, I'm looking at Christmas through the eyes of Mary. I'm feeling my faith, and it's a good feeling. When the angels visited Mary, there were queens and kings, prophets and priests, folks this world considered to be important, who expected an angel to visit them. But the angel came to a simple little girl who felt unworthy. And I believe that if we become like Mary, unpretentious and unselfish and understanding and uninhibited in our praise, 
we too will set ourselves up for a miracle in our lives. When you stop living for yourself and thinking that you are all that and realize that God is really all that, when you get over yourself, when you bow your will and say to God, yes, sir, coach, when you open up your heart to listen and learn, when you're willing to get giddy over God, you put yourself in line for a divine visitation. Like Mary, you too could get touched by an angel. That's exactly what happened to Elizabeth English. She owned a retail appliance store. Elizabeth was about to lock up on Christmas Eve when she noticed a layaway package over in the corner of her shop. It saddened her that someone wouldn't be getting their present, but she had waited as long as she could. The next day, Elizabeth just couldn't get into the Christmas spirit. She kept thinking about that lone box. For no real reason, she walked back to her store that day. When she arrived, two little boys in tattered clothes were waiting on her front steps. The older boy explained that his companion, Jimmy, didn't get a present that morning. And he was there to buy him one. Jimmy wanted some skates. Sadly, Elizabeth had sold out. That's when she thought of that lonely package. She ripped it open, not knowing what was inside, only to discover a pair of skates exactly Jimmy's size. She refused the boy's money and gave the skates to his young friend. And as Elizabeth was locking up, she asked the older boy how he knew that she would open the store on Christmas Day. He replied, I knew you would come. I asked Jesus to send you. Elizabeth felt that she had been visited by an angel, that she had participated in a miracle. Needless to say, this time she went home in the Christmas spirit. Always remember, miracles do happen. Angels do appear. Not to the winners, but to the lowly. Not to the selfish, but to the submitted. Not to the know-it-alls, but to the learners, not to the somber, but to the jolly. Divine visitations come to hearts like the little girls of my former basketball team. Hearts like Mary. This year, I want to see Christmas through the eyes of Mary. I'm forgetting about winning. I'm admitting my frailties. I'm thanking God for His mercy and grace. This year, I'm bowing my life to God. I'm submitting my plans to God. I'm opening up my heart to God. I'm slowing down to learn. And I'm enjoying the lights. I'm choosing to be cheerful. I've already had a few praise eruptions. This Christmas will be different for me because I'm looking at it through the eyes of Mary. What about you? Decide to see Christmas through Mary's eyes. And maybe, just maybe, God will send a Christmas miracle to you. Father, we thank you.